All right, who's ready for a difficult sermon? <laughs> for those who have been looking ahead, uh, we are on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we work our way through the book, the letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, written a couple of thousand years ago, part of God's word. Today, there's just no, um, there's no sort of uh, getting around the fact that this is a confronting and challenging passage. Uh, a passage that probably you haven't heard a sermon on, probably you won't, may not again hear a sermon on. This may be your one and only chance to hear a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, in my Bible, I don't know if you've got a Bible in front of you, but my Bible says that this passage is titled, Dealing with a Case of Incest. Okay, um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting passage. Um, there are passages of Scripture where, if I was honest, I would prefer not to, to preach them. If I just uh, cherry-pick passages, I would, I would probably not go to this passage. And the fact that I'm preaching through this is actually, I think, a reflection of something very important, which is that we don't just pick the passages that we prefer and want to preach. That there's something about choosing a letter, a book of the Bible, and working through it that means that we just preach whatever we come up against. And it reminds us that God's promise is that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, every word of Scripture is worth preaching and worth teaching and worth reading and worth studying. And some of the passages of Scripture that you read are going to be inspirational. You read them and they're uplifting and they're wonderful and they're powerful. And there's other passages of Scripture that are not in the same way, that they're kind of hard work. But in them, there's something that is being said that we need to hear. I read, um, as I sometimes do, I, I looked up a couple of sermons um, once I'd sort of got most of it down just to see how others had approached this. And several pastors said, you know, when I preached this passage, it offended some people. Some people were put off. Some people didn't like to hear it. So I preached this with a degree of trepidation, and, um, but, but with a, a deep sense of prayer that God will speak through his word to us this morning. So let's open up. With no further ado, and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes to the Corinthians, It is actually reported that there is a case of sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? 
Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And the final words, expel the wicked person from among you. Okay. So, a bit of a lighthearted passage. I was trying to think of a, a story or a joke to start off. I thought maybe I'd get your attention by saying we'll finish our service today by expelling some immoral brothers from among us. <laughs> we won't do that. Um, but actually, I'm conscious that actually this passage may not, for many people, be just an academic or a theological exercise. Perhaps some of us have been at churches where people have left or felt like they've been made to leave because of something that's happened in their life. Or perhaps people have not been made to leave where perhaps they should have been made to leave or given church discipline at some level. And because that didn't happen, it caused pain in people's lives. For me, it's not an academic exercise. At different times as a leader, I've had to exercise church discipline. My very first church, the pastor who called me into ministry, who was my first mentor, whom I looked up to, was found to have breached code of ethics to a point where he was removed from the church. And I went from him being one day my senior pastor to from then on someone who I didn't basically ever see again. So this is not simply theory. This is something that churches at time to time have to deal with. And if churches do it correctly, then that can be something that can be helpful to the church and to the person. And if it's something that's done badly, which perhaps it more often is, it can be incredibly destructive both to the health of the church and to the spiritual life of the person who is being disciplined. So this passage is not to be treated lightly. Let's get into it. What is the issue in this passage? Verse 1 states the issue. Paul's writing here not just a general kind of here's some advice generally. He's writing about a specific issue happening in Corinth that's been going on for a while and he's writing to address it. The issue is, it says that a man, a particular man, is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, uh, for most people, who's your father's wife? It's your mother. It's a strange turn of phrase. It doesn't say that. And so uh, it's possible that that's what's happening. It does say it's something that even the pagans 
would consider uh, something they wouldn't tolerate. And we know that in Corinth, Corinth was famous as a particularly uh, immoral place and a particularly kind of open to immorality and not clamping down on it. So for them to, to say this, it must be something severe. However, most theologians, because of this use of the phrase, a man is sleeping with his father's wife rather than saying with his mother, in most cases, theologians seem to think this is more likely that it is uh, his father's like a stepmother situation. So you've got someone, a, a person in the church whose father is married to another woman and, uh, and now the stepson has shacked up with the stepmother and they're living together and in a sexual relationship. That's probably what's happening. We don't know if they're still married. We don't know if the father's still alive. We don't know if it is a stepmother. Either way, it's something that is considered to be um, a pretty severe case of sexual immorality. And um, it's also clear in this passage that what's happening here is not a one-off mistake, not a one-off sin, okay? It's not as though uh, someone has um, committed a one-off sin and is then repentant and is seeking to repent and to be restored from that. That is Obviously, a destructive and sad and, and unacceptable thing, but that's not what's going on here. What's going on in this passage is someone who is committing an ongoing uh, sin, unrepentant, and no desire to change. That's the key thing. And those two situations need to be treated differently. It's not as though if someone did the first thing, uh, you just ignore it. But it's a different thing if someone is repentant to being unrepentant. It's different if it's ongoing compared to a one-off thing. And those things need to be treated differently within the church. Um, we all struggle with sin, which is not to minimise sin. It's not to minimise its effects or that it's not right. But we all struggle with sin. If we were to expel everyone who sinned, it would be a case of last one out, turn the lights off. Okay, we would, we would probably, you know, we'd say, all right, by next Sunday, there would not be many people rocking up. Okay, um, so that's a, a different thing to what we're talking about here. Next up is what is the reaction of the church and its leaders? Well, it's clear that the church has not taken action on this at all. In fact, verse 2 says, this is, verse 1 talks about what's happening, and verse 2 says, and you the church, and you are proud. You are proud. You think, what's going on there? Well, it seems that the Corinthian culture of anything goes, the wider Corinthian city culture, has infiltrated the church, and so the church is taking the attitude, well, anything goes. We don't, we don't really care. And it's quite possible that in Corinth, see, the Corinthians were very, very spiritual people. They were very focused on gifts and signs and expressing spirituality. And it's quite possible that they're kind of saying, like they're separating spirituality from what might be called the morality or the ethical responsibilities of being a Christian. Or they're separating the, the spirit from the body. And so they're saying, hey, it's, it's, it's all about the spirit. It's all about what you do spiritually. And what you do with your body doesn't matter so much. It's also possible that what's happening is, is what Paul also addressed in Romans, where there's this idea of we have been set free. We've been set free from the old law. 
Therefore, we're not bound to it. And therefore, it's almost as though to go on sinning is, is almost a way of showing how free we are from the law. In Romans, Paul says this, Romans 6, 2, he says, What shall we say then in response to our freedom? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, more sin means more grace. And his response there is, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's like you guys were, you guys were in a mud pile. You've been pulled out and you've been cleaned. Now why would you go on living in the mud pile and climb back in when you've been set free from that? Why would you use your freedom to continue to sin? What a, what a waste, what a, what a travesty that would be. What a, what a terrible, ridiculous choice to make to be set free and then to go on doing the very thing that you've been set free from. So what should have they done? Well, Paul has a very, very clear uh, application here in this passage. The first thing is that they should have gone into mourning. He says, you should have gone into mourning. I guess this raises the question about how we respond to sin within our congregation. When we see other people actually living, practicing, making choices, doing things that reflect sin in our congregation, not in our own lives, but in others in our congregation, how do we respond to that? And the biggest, the question I'm asking here is, does it cause us grief? Does it grieve our hearts when we see others making choices and doing things that are actually against God's will and God's way? You see, we've created a society in our Western society which also influences the church and the way we think about things where our culture has become individualistic, which is like I will do, I'll look after myself or my family, just myself and my family. We've got to be concerned about ourselves and look after ourselves and worry about ourselves and we shouldn't worry about anyone else. It's not up to us to judge anyone. It's not up to us to kind of concern ourselves as much with it. It's about, you know, look after yourself and let everyone be. That is not the biblical way of doing life together. The biblical way of doing life together is actually a concern, a love for one another, a love that is enough that we have a concern for one another, and so that when someone falls in sin, it shouldn't be a cause for gossip, it shouldn't be a cause for uh, sort of a selfish or a self-righteous kind of, or look at them, they're doing the wrong thing, and that sort of makes me feel almost a little bit good because I'm not doing the wrong thing like they are. It should grieve us. It should grieve our hearts. It should break us. It should cause us a deep sense of mourning when someone who should be living in the joy and freedom of Christ is actually living in the trap of sin. And, uh, and that's Paul's first thought. The second thing is a controversial one, where he says that the, basically the man should be put out of the fellowship. And um, there's, uh, it's, he's pretty clear about this. He says that in verse 3. He says... Uh, um, for my part, even though I'm not physically present with you, oh, he says in verse 2, and you should have put him out of the fellowship, the man who has been doing this. Paul says he's judged him. 
And then at the end of the passage, he makes it really, really clear. He says, now I'm writing to you, you must not even associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. He's making it clear this isn't just about sexual immorality or a particular kind of sin. He says, do not even eat with such people. And he finishes by saying, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, as you hear that, I suspect there's bells ringing for you guys. There might, be, there might be things that you're thinking, and these things might be these. Isn't that unloving to expel someone? I mean, isn't that incredibly unloving? Secondly, isn't it judgmental? In fact, Paul here says that he's judged the person. He's not really shying away from it. Isn't it judgmental? Aren't we meant to be, like Matthew 7, 1, uh, told not to not to judge? And hasn't the church at times caused grief by being judgmental? And doesn't the external world look at the church and says the church is judgmental in its actions and behaviours? Therefore, you know, we, we kind of, uh, you know, shouldn't be judgmental. Thirdly, isn't it hypocritical? As I said before, we're all sinners. So how can one sinner judge another sinner? And, uh, and finally, you could ask the question, isn't it ineffective? If you expel someone from the fellowship, aren't they likely just to say, well, I have been judged and I've been rejected and therefore I'm not coming back? Unloving, judgmental, hypocritical, ineffective. So how could we go and do this? What should we do in today's world? Is it still the right thing to do? Paul's writing about one situation in Corinth 2,000 years ago. We need to apply it to our world and ask ourselves the question, is this something that is appropriate still to do today? Uh, What I would say is this. It is not loving to turn a blind eye to unrepentant, ongoing sin. It's not loving. Are you still with me, by the way? <laughs> it's not one of those sermons where I'm getting a lot of laughs, that's all. Um, uh, it's not loving to turn a blind eye. It's just not. And, and sometimes we think that's the, that is kind of, that, it's actually the easy option, but it's not the godly option. If we see someone who is sinning in our church, then it is not loving for the church just to turn a blind eye and let that continue. In fact, what should have happened in this church and where there is sin in the church is that something should be said or done uh, well before it gets to the point where the church has got to in Corinth. There should have been words spoken. In fact, before this all should have happened, if the church is loving one another, serving one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, then all of those things are actually likely to prevent this actually developing. And if it does develop, then the instruction Paul gives to admonish one another that actually we should speak into our lives, one another's lives, and be bold enough to do that. I'm not talking about the person that you've known for one week, but I'm talking about as a church where there's deep bonds of love and fellowship and where there's actually, you've actually proven yourself to be a brother or sister in Christ, a loving brother or sister. 
and where leadership actually have a role to play in this, that it is not loving to turn a blind eye and it is right to speak where something should be said. And church discipline primarily is something to be exercised by church leaders with compassion and wisdom. And where they fail to do this ever, they are being not true to their task. I'm just looking at our elders over here. It's an incredible challenge that you guys have, that there's times when you need to exercise that graciously and lovingly. What is the goal for Paul in putting this person out of the church? Let's be really clear. It is not just let's get rid of this person so that, and then we can wash our hands and just not have to deal with them anymore. Paul's great desire is actually that the person would be restored to fellowship. Paul says in verse 4 and 5 these pretty uh, confronting words. He says, hand the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Uh, the only other time in script, the whole of Scripture where this same phrase is used, hand this person over to Satan, is actually in the book of Job. That's the only other time this phrase is used. And the outcome for Job, uh, the very end of Job, the, the outcome for Job of this happening is in Job 42.6. It says this, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Paul's desire is that this will lead to the person repenting, repenting and being restored to fellowship. I'm going to tell you this sermon is full of words and concepts that our church doesn't really like today. Repentance and sin. But this is a message for the fellowship for our church to hear. The goal is repentance, not that they would be rejected forever uh, that, that through being expelled, it would lead them to wake up and to them to go, this is not right and this is not acceptable and this cannot continue. This is meant to be the watershed moment that causes the person to go, this is not okay and my church has said it's not okay and it's so not okay that they've taken this drastic step so that I might wake up and change my ways and repent and be restored into fellowship. Paul goes on to talk about the danger of keeping the person within the church community. He talks about how the idea of like a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven uh, works its way through the whole batch. And where actually if you don't have standards as a church, if you don't actually speak up about things and don't say this is not who we are and not what we're about, then a church can become a place where others can be affected by that and think, well, I guess it is a case of anything goes in the church. I guess it is a case that what this person is doing maybe isn't so bad or is okay and it can lead that to happen. I guess I've seen that particularly in younger congregations amongst youth or young adults where there isn't any church discipline and where it, it is just about, hey, whatever happens, it's okay, you're just loved. And it becomes a case of, well, I think, you know, doing this on a Friday night or a Saturday night is, is okay. It's kind of the accepted. And it becomes this practice where people are rocking up to church on a Sunday and putting their hands in there and singing the worship songs. But last night they were actually out on town getting completely drunk, sleeping around, whatever. And it's become like, hey, that's kind of okay because no one's talking about it and no one's showing discipline and therefore self-discipline and holiness and obedience to God's word has just kind of gone out the window. And that's what Paul's talking about here. 
And it's a huge risk for the Corinthian church because of the world and the culture they live in. And it's a huge risk for us because of the culture of our world too. So Paul makes a final point of clarification in verse 9 and 10. If you've got your Bible, have a look at that. We can put it up on the screen. He wants to make something really clear. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, and this is talking about a letter he wrote before 1 Corinthians, a letter that's actually now lost. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he makes this point. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. What he's saying is, I'm talking to you specifically here about those who profess Jesus as Lord and are part of the church community. He said, this is how you are to respond where these issues exist within the church. This is not about Christians going outside the church and saying, hey, to to, to people who are not followers of Jesus, hey, I'm going to judge you and assume that even though you're not a follower of Jesus, you should follow the, uh, the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the word. He says, if you, were to, if you were to do that, you're going to have to remove yourself completely from the world. You're going to have to kind of go and live in a cave somewhere. So this has got nothing to do, this sermon, to be really clear about how we relate to non-Christians. There's no expectation. There should be no expectation on non-Christians to follow the sexual morality, the uh, you know, morality around idolatry, around drinking, around anything that Christians practice. It's not for us to go out and judge the world. We should show a very different approach than going out and judging the world. And when Christians do that, it's just, it is just judgmental because you're judging people who haven't chosen to follow your standards upon your standards. And the church has very often actually done the wrong thing and that it's actually been judgmental of people in the world but failed to exercise discipline to people within the church. And to me, that's when the church proves itself to be completely hypocritical. So how do I finish this joyous service? <laughs> this joyous sermon, I should say. It was a joyous sermon, service, <laughs> until I started preaching the sermon. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But I want to say this. This message speaks into a challenging time. It speaks into a Western culture that's become individualistic, as I said before. It's preached into a modern spirituality where anyone hearing this message who is not a believer uh, would find it very difficult because our spirituality that people do want these days is kind of like, I want something that makes me feel spiritual, feel peaceful, feel positive, but I certainly don't want any talk about sin and repentance to be part of that. It clashes with the redefinition of sexual norms in society. It clashes with the new morality of the West, which says tolerance is the highest virtue and intolerance in any form is kind of seen as the ultimate sin now. But here's the deal. We are called to be not people of the world, but people of the word, people of the spirit. I'd say this about expelling a brother or sister. This should always be the very last step should be the last step. It should follow a culture that develops in our church. And this is really the point I want to finish with, is that the culture in the church that we need to develop and foster is one in which we 
have love for one another, which, as I said before, we have those biblical one another's evident in our church. Nick made a great quote in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if it was his quote. He's not here to answer that. He must be downstairs. But he said this, The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And the worst thing we could be is indifferent towards one another. What a, what a thing to keep pressing in towards as a church in this day and age, a church where we deeply, deeply love one another. And in that love, we love each other so much that we would be willing as a church, as leaders, as spiritual leaders, to do the very, very difficult, sometimes painful, sometimes awkward, potentially um, something that may not end as well as you want, but to do the things that need to be done when it needs to happen to show discipline, loving, gracious discipline within the church so that people might repent and live lives that glorify the Lord and not only do practices but actually be restored into a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, which is our goal. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our church would grow, would continue to grow, grow in love for you and in love for one another, that our church would, would grow in our longing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with this knowledge of you, filled with uh, an intimacy in our walk with Jesus that we would know the deep love of the Father and that all of those things would shape how we live our lives in response and that we would have a deep love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 